0: Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at GraceAnglicanOnline.com. Let's pray as we stand. Lord our God, we do thank you so much for your mighty power. We thank you also for your great gentleness and kindness. And we thank you that this evening we will encounter you through the words of Holy Scripture. Please move in our hearts powerfully, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So please do take a seat. It is uh, wonderful to be with you this evening and to have been invited to grace this august pulpit, which is absolutely huge, and <laughs> clearly built for the American man, and not some <laughs> squat Brit who managed to sneak in. Now, I am actually a friend of, of both of these chaps here, if uh, it could be said that they have friends. Uh, we communicate only in doctrine, and that's the, the sole basis of our friendship, and uh, that's how it should be, I think. You can probably tell from uh, my accent that uh, as indeed was said, I am not from around here. Uh, I'm actually from Fox Chapel, uh, where they, they all sound like this. And uh, contrary to what was advertised, I did not in fact grow up in the Church of England. I grew up in the bars of England, and I, I was met by the Lord Jesus Christ in my early 20s in the Church of England, which uh, I think probably was about a one in a hundred year event. So that really was a miracle indeed that the Lord found me in that church. But uh, praise God for, for our salvation. And we're looking at this very subject this evening. If you've got a Bible with you or a smartphone or an iPad or, or, or maybe you've memorized it, let's, uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 15 together, shall we? And the, uh, the premises, of course in the bulletin as well, oh, which is very clever, the, uh, the premises of this talk is very simple. And that is that whenever we meet Jesus, we come with one of two agendas. Some people, when they, when they meet Jesus, they simply come looking for a fight. Well, they want to prove that they're right and he's wrong. But others, when they meet Jesus, they, they come looking for help. And interestingly, whatever our intentions are when we meet Jesus, if they're good or bad, his intentions will be consistently the same, and that will be to meet you with the grace of the kingdom of God. And, and Matthew 15 is just an example of this doctrinal point. Jesus is after you. Let's look at Matthew 15. You'll see it very clearly. Well, it's been a very uh, exhausting series of encounters for Jesus uh, in these recent passages. Uh, in uh, Matthew 12 to 15, you find that some of the people bumping into Jesus have very sinister intentions. So in a grain field on the Sabbath, as they're picking corn, uh, some people emerge from out behind a scarecrow and say, we've caught you, look what you're doing, you're breaking the Sabbath. And uh, it was uh, Sherry Hobby, the bishop's wife, who observed to me that uh, if it's so bad to be in the grain field on the Sabbath, what are these guys doing there? (laughs) It's a rather good point. Uh, Out in Galilee, in the middle of nowhere, it's the passage right before this one, A delegation of the most important religious elite from the capital city, out in the middle of nowhere, suddenly see Jesus and his disciples doing something wrong, and they start a fight about hand washing. They say, We've caught you at it again. So you get the impression, don't you, that they're stalking him, that they're looking for trouble, that they're spying on him, that their objective is to catch him out, and the more vain and more aggressive and more sneaky they become, the more bold and clear and confrontational Christ has to become. So thus we find in verse 21 where the passage begins today that Jesus has just about had enough, and he went away from there and withdrew. He escaped and took himself away. He is tired quite remarkable, isn't it? Although he is fully God, and these encounters that he has in the Gospels demonstrate very clearly that he is fully God, he's also fully human, and so he is tired by all of this stuff. And he's looking for a break, but of course there will be no break because of who he is. He is the king of kings, so wherever he goes, whoever he meets, there's going to be an encounter and they are going to come face to face with the kingdom of God, so there's no rest. Some of them are spoiling for a fight, others are begging for help, but there's always something going on. And I think the point that, that Matthew is trying to get across, the wider point, is that there really is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no apathetic, neutral place with Jesus. You're for him or against him, he says. Verse 22. He encounters A Canaanite woman. It's someone from a pagan area. Canaan is a pagan place. There's a long history of hostility between the people of Canaan and God's people, the Jews. And so we might imagine that this encounter is going to be another run-in, another confrontation. But it's rather surprising, actually. It says here that she was crying. It literally means that she was croaking like a raven what the original word means. You know, that kind of uh, noise that that a bird makes. It really gets your attention. It's a horrible noise that she's making. It gets the attention. And then she says, have mercy on me. So clearly something is desperately wrong in her life. And then she declares, oh Lord, son of David. A little bit different from what the religious elite say, isn't it? You might be aware of some of the names they call Jesus. In one of the recent passages, the religious elite accused him of being Satan. They accuse Jesus, God, of being Satan. Here is a pagan, a woman who's supposed to hate him, and she calls him Lord. Probably just a, a polite word, probably just a, a word of deference, like we would say sir, or something like that. But the next phrase is highly theological. It's not deferential, it's theological. She says, "Son of David." It's a statement of who she believes Jesus really is. So the Jewish people, they, they were awaiting someone descended from King David. King David was their greatest king. They were promised a messiah, someone who would come, descended from the lineage of King David, and like King David, rescue and rebuild. God's people. And they assumed, because of all the trouble they'd been through over all the years with Assyria and Babylon and and Greece and Persia and and Rome, that this Messiah, this King of Kings, would be someone strong, a a military person or, or a political leader. You know, in chapter 12, it's because Jesus' ministry looked so very different from what they were expecting that having come to believe that he was the son of David, they start to backtrack a little bit, scratch their heads and say, could this really be the son of David? Instead of beating people up, he's healing them. It's not what they expected. And so they start to conclude that maybe he's not who they wanted. This woman has the opposite view. It's actually his ministry of healing that convinces her that he really must be this Messiah, the Promised One. See, any old soldier can, can put weapons on, a, a long sword for an open battle, a very short sword for getting underneath the shield wall and attacking the ankles and a big shield and leather and armour. Any old soldier can do that. But only God can fight against the forces of evil. And that is what is going on in this lady's life, if you look with me. He says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, with this uh, phrase, severely oppressed, it's not a literal translation. It's, it's trying to capture the essence of the experience rather than the meaning of the word. Because the actual word is just bad. My daughter is bad with a demon. Pretty crude way of speaking. What it really means is amiss, diseased, evil, grievously, miserably sick. There is a very serious, acute, bad spiritual problem going on at her home. And we don't have time to, to dig into it all. I'll, I'll just I'll leave that one to you. You deal with the demons. <laughs> but we can say that this, this, this involves really serious spiritual powers that are way beyond her ability to understand and even further beyond her ability to control. She is suffering from something deeply dark and demonic and frightening and alarming. And you can only imagine, can't you, what that would look like in a tiny house, in a tiny village, all that suffering and, and all of that terror, day in, day out, or probably night in, night out, the, the screeching and the disturbances and the, and, the, and the the horror of this. Now just imagine being, being a parent, being a mother of a daughter, suffering like this when your child is suffering and, and being powerless to do anything to help your child who's suffering. I'm, Sure that some of us in the room will have been through things like this, where our child is hurt, and we realise that actually, as parents, we don't have what it takes to fix our child's problem. If that's you, you, you might sympathise with her at this point. There's a spiritual aspect to this. For this girl, there's a fear. You know, what is this demon thing all about? You know, what, what does this mean for her salvation? Is she ever going to be saved? There's a physical aspect to this. She's probably harming herself. Who knows, she may even be be harming her mother, coming in at night, trying to throttle her, all sorts of things going on, chaos. And a social aspect to the problem as well. I highly doubt that this family are on very many guest lists. No one is gonna want them there. And in their culture, they would actually assume that they'd done something to deserve it. You know, even in our own culture, let's forget the demonic for a minute, let's dial it way down now, let's dial it way back. Whenever any of us suffers with anything, a disease or an illness or, or you know, we lose a job or something goes wrong at home and, you know, a family falls to pieces, whenever any of us suffer from something, whatever it may be, there's almost always someone there to judge you, isn't there? Almost always. My friend Amy had a very rare condition. Just a few months before her death, she parked her car in a wheelchair space outside of a store, and she walked in, and someone attacked her for parking in the space. Said that she didn't look sick enough to be parked there. I have absolutely no idea what this woman expected to see. You know, what what was going to be enough for her? The car door opened, and a minute later, just a corpse falls out onto the floor. She crawls into the store. You know, three paramedics with a drip stand and bleeping machines following her around. I have absolutely no idea what her standard was for someone who deserves one of these spaces, but as it turned out, in fact, she did deserve that space. You don't know what's going on in people's hearts. You don't know what's going on in people's lives. We don't get to judge because not one of us knows all of the intricacies of each other's lives. Every one of us, I suspect, at least in our families, is dealing with something. I don't know what it is. We're just meeting for the first time, most of us, but every one of us is dealing with something whatever we look like, however clean and buttoned up and ready for church we may appear. Of course, when people find out our true story, not in church, but out there in the great, you know, horrible world, when, when, they, when they are finished judging you, they hear your story, the next thing they like to do is advise. you Have been on the thick end of this one? You're suffering with something? If you are, it won't be very long before someone comes along and gives you some helpful advice and tells you what to do, as though you'd never thought of it. So you're suffering from debilitating headaches. And they say, well, have you thought about pills? <laughs> you need some therapy, they say. Uh, Chiropractic help. You need a diet. That will fix it. Go paleo. <laughs> and you want to say, oh, medicine, what a wonderful idea. I never thought of that. We don't have pills on the planet. Ugh. You know. But, you know, you you hold your tongue because you're a decent Christian. Let's dial it way down, okay? Let's dial it even further down. So not the demonic, let's dial it down. Not a sickness, let's dial it down. Not even a problem at home. But let's choose something entirely ordinary that we all go through and have all seen. Have you ever seen a child in a store having a tantrum? It's wonderful, isn't it? It's great to watch. It's horrible if you happen to be the parent. Now, we all know it's clearly a developmental stage, isn't it? It's incredibly common among small children and uh, politicians as well. But when your child is melting down, there's not very much you can do. You've got three options. You can pander to it, ignore it, or give it a thrashing. And those are the three main options. I tell you what will not work. Reason. <laughs> No, Johnny, you don't need a Kindle, you're illiterate, it won't work. (laughs) Even though it's incredibly common and and there's nothing you can do about a tantrum, when it starts, you're in, there's nothing you can do. It is nonetheless monumentally embarrassing for us, isn't it? When we happen to be in charge of this child, red-faced child, going wild in the aisles, kicking over all the Nilla wafers because you won't buy them a novelty lemon squeezer, for example. (laughs) Should we dial it back up again? Let's get back to scripture. So not a developmental stage that we all go through, and not even a very unusual sickness that some of us go through, but now we have on our hands a permanent and terrifying spiritual condition way beyond their ability to understand or overcome. It's demonic in origin and it's taking place in a tiny community that is culturally conditioned to view this as a commentary on this family's holiness. They have done something to deserve this, say the chattering classes. There's no point in reasoning with them. This is their worldview. There's no point in saying, no, actually, it's evil. It's not fair, it's not reasonable, it's not proportionate, it's not deserved, it's unfair, unreasonable, disproportionate, undeserved. That's why we call it evil, it's not fair, because they're not gonna be on the same wavelength as we are in their culture great suffering was amplified by the great shame that it brought. So we have on our hands here a very extreme situation of suffering. Uh, Scholars even say that there was a pagan healing shrine about three miles from this woman's house. So people will be saying, of course, judgment and advice, why don't you go there? Have you thought about medicine? Go to the healing shrine and then you'll be fine, as though she'd never thought of it. But this woman's theology is refined in the crucible of her suffering. It is her suffering that gives her kingdom eyes. It's her suffering that brings, us to Je- brings her to Jesus. It's the things that she's gone through that leads her to her wit's end, where she realizes her only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Funny, isn't it? You know, No one really wants suffering, and yet this woman has this kingdom eyesight because of it. What she's got on her hands, I think, is a power beyond her ability to control. She knows as well that there's only one person ever that's going to be able to control and and set free her daughter from this demonic presence. It is the son of David, of course, the king of kings and the Messiah. And by remarkable providence, he has just walked into her remote village on vacation. Lottery win. How fantastic. Fantastic. Thus, uh, what comes next is is, uh, something of a shock. That's British understatement. Verse 23, he did not answer her a word. That's a bit awkward, isn't it? I mean, like she's in real trouble and he's just ignoring her. And his disciples came and begged him. They've had enough. Send her away, for she is crying out after us, brackets, like a crow. So it could mean get rid of her, you know, send her away. But I think what it means is help her. Send her away satisfied. Heal the daughter. It might be more mercenary than compassionate. They might be thinking, you know, there'll be no more spies from Jerusalem, no more women who sound like crows, no one's going to have a demon. We can all go on holiday. Remember that cool thing you did with the wine? Can we have some of that, please? And we'll all sit down and take the chill pill. It might be mercenary, but they're still saying Jesus can you intervene? And when Jesus finally speaks, he says, no. Fantastic. Verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, if you want to, you can read more about this in the books of Acts chapter one and Romans chapter one. Uh, His mission, Jesus' mission was focused on Israel. This is God's salvation plan. He will reveal himself first to the Jews and then to all of the nations afterwards. Build up a small group of people, reveal the kingdom to them, let the gospel spread to another group of people as the kingdom advances, let the gospel spread to another group and the kingdom advances and advances and advances until it says at the end of Matthew that it will go out to all of the nations and then Christ will return. That is the salvation plan. And this woman, it's a bit of a bummer for her, she's not part of the plan. So Jesus says no. And in our shock, at the sheer coldness of this response, ignoring and then saying no, and it'll get worse in a minute, did anyone notice how he referred to Israel? Did anyone see what what phrase he used about Israel? You can shout it out if if you did, what phrase he used to describe Israel. The lost sheep, that's right. He called them the lost sheep of Israel. Not the lost sheep in Israel, like a few lost weirdos on the fringes of society, but the whole lot, the whole nation is characterized, says Jesus, by its lostness. And these are God's chosen people. That's the remarkable thing. And he says, unless and until they repent and they encounter him, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. They are not automatically in no one drifts into the kingdom of god no one is there by birthright it is only by his death on the cross and our faith in that through grace that any of us can be reconciled to god and our sin is imputed upon god just as his righteousness is imputed upon us he dies just as we get to live the great exchange takes place on the cross and then and only then when we trust in him May we enter the kingdom of God. It's a very tough thing to hear. It's completely free. But it's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? Because so many of us think rather highly of ourselves. We think that maybe by default somehow we automatically deserve to be in. Others have got a low-fat version of this, a sort of uh, salvation light uh, only the very worst of people are out. Uh, and by the way, we get to say who they are. So uh, Hitler, Stalin, a few terrorists, maybe, I don't know, the IRS. Uh, people from Penn State. I don't know. That was a risk, I don't know. Is that, is that? I think you're okay. Oh, I got away with it. <laughs> Jesus makes it very clear in this, in this tiny reference to the lost sheep of Israel that the nation with the greatest claim in human history, the covenant people of God, if, if any nation ever could say, oh yeah, we're in automatically because we just deserve to be here, it's them. He's saying the nation with the strongest claim to automatic salvation without Christ is still out, still lost, still hellbound, still enchained, still in need of deliverance and freedom and healing and salvation. So he says to her, would you mind going away? You're not really my focus, madam. But she knelt before him and she said, Lord, help me, that's verse 25, because she's not going anywhere, because she knows that Jesus is her only hope. And in verse 26, he answered, here's the insult, it is not right to take the children's bread, the children are the children of Israel, God's people. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He has just called her, a suffering woman, a dog. doesn't really sound like the default Jesus of our culture, does it? It's not sort of flippy, floppy, wishy-washy, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, saying to the traumatised mother of a demonised daughter, all my people are going to hell and you're a dog, so go away. We're not going to put that on a Christian decal and put that over our dining room, are we? (laughs) Not exactly catchy or enticing, is it? You know, Christians are so uncomfortable with this saying, as uncomfortable as I am having to preach it, as uncomfortable as you are having to listen to it, they're so uncomfortable with this that they've come up with various ways to get out of it and make it mean something else. Some of them say, well, the word dog, see, it's actually a diminutive word for dog, kynunion, it means puppies. So actually, it's a pet name, and he's being nice to her you know, tickle tummy, it's a kind of you know, cute phrase Uh, um, others say this is an actual scholar said in an actual scholastic book written by a scholar published by a scholastic organisation in actual print by a real person um, ah well he had a twinkle in his eye (laughs) like he's teasing her you know, wink wink, nudge nudge like it, like it, know what I mean, say no more like a sort of Monty Python sketch just making it up as they go along. There's absolutely no historical evidence for the proposition that he had a twinkle in his eye. Where did he get it from? It's just made up. Because we're uncomfortable. We call it scholarship. Scholars are paid literally tens of dollars to come up with this (laughs) stuff. It's not a compliment, folks. It's it's not a tease. He's not saying to her, you know, what's up, dog? Doesn't work with my accents anyway, does it? You know, what is up, dog? It's not an affectionate term. It's not a tease. It's not a ghetto greeting. This is the way that the Jews described the Gentiles. It is somewhat superior, somewhat insulting. And Jesus says he's here to feed the children of Israel. They are lost. Even God's focus is lost. They're currently dying, and he is focused on this mission like a battlefield surgeon going around the strewn, injured, focusing on just a few to the exclusion of others so that the race may survive. But, verse 27, she said, after all of that, yes, Lord. Not, yes, Lord, I agree with you. Fair enough, I'll go away now. But yes, Lord, I disagree with you. It is right to help the wrong people sometimes. She replies, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So just to to describe what this is on a literal level before we do the theology, it's just a literal illustration that uh, when real children eat real food, real dogs come to the real table and eat the real scraps that fall on the real floor. The illustration would make no sense whatsoever if this were not a thing we all went through. Uh, My dog, Rugby, quickly uh, learned where to sit at mealtimes when he joined our household. Uh, Typically where my wife sits, Catherine, it's immaculate where she is. She's quite a small person, and uh, she's also very neat. So she only lives off three seeds a month, and so there's no (laughs) food going there. Uh, Hammer, my seven-year-old daughter, she's also surprisingly clean, uh, but that's because she eats only butter. <laughs> well, where I sit, it is something of a mixed bag, I'm afraid to tell you. I'm a bit scruffy, and this is where my son Ben gets it from because his chair looks like a monkey put a hand grenade in a cement mixer full of food at a fairground. Uh, there's, there's no other explanation for the, the, yeah, that sort of halo of detritus encircling his chair at the end of a mealtime. If dogs can have crumbs from tables, then Gentiles, she reasons, can have crumbs from the kingdom. She says, I'm not asking for very much, Jesus, you know. If you're God, and I think you are, at least you're from him, then this is nothing for you. If you're really God and you have infinite power, then just a crumb of the kingdom will be sufficient to deliver my daughter from this thing that everyone else in history has been powerless to attend to. I think she's right. She might also be doing some wonderful theology here because she did not have Acts chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1 to describe God's salvation plans, first to the Jews and then to all of the nations. Didn't have it because it hadn't been written yet, but she did have Genesis 9. And after Noah's flood in Genesis 9, God makes a promise to care for his people. But the promise has this hint of the kingdom advancing as well. It says that they should be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so I wonder if she's doing some very clever theology here. And she's saying, if you're the king, then the kingdom has come. And if the kingdom has come, then can I have a little bit of it, please? Just a scrap. It'll be enough for me. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. This is arguably the greatest compliment to come from the lips of Jesus Christ. To a Roman centurion, he says something similar, but this is is high praise indeed. Great is your faith. Now, the only other person really is that Roman centurion, but the the disciples, you know, who, who are pretty impressive characters, they get told their faith is little. The Pharisees, the most impressive religious elite of the day, uh, they get told that they have no faith as they try to save themselves. But this woman, an enemy of God, a pagan from the wrong side of the tracks, with a terrible debilitating condition, judged by the entire place, making a horrible noise and commotion, ignored, rebuffed, and then rebuked, has the greatest and strongest faith that Jesus has ever seen. She humbles herself. That's why she receives the kingdom of God. God chooses to let her humble herself. I mean, he, he walked into her village. What is he doing there? He is after her, just as he's after your hearts today. If you know Jesus, he wants more. If you don't, he wants you, and then he wants more. Because whatever our intentions are, his intentions will always be the same, and that is to encounter you with the kingdom of God. An immeasurable gift of grace... It's the grace of God that dragged me out of the gutter and then let me go and work for a church. God is crazy about you. He loves you. We know this because of his son, Jesus Christ, because of that death on the cross. The vain are humbled, the vulnerable are healed when they encounter Jesus. And friends, there are no biblical examples of anything in between of these two extremes. Let's pray, shall we? Lord our God, we do thank you so much for this remarkable healing, but also the remarkable statements that it makes about our utter need for you. We do thank you, Lord God, that the gospel is proclaimed so so fervently in this place. Thank you, Lord God, for this people in this church. Please, would you build up your saints here? Would you... Make this church characterized by its welcome to all who walk through the doors, whatever it may be that's going on in their hearts that we don't get to see and don't get to judge. Would you make this a place of of warm, loving, kingdom welcome? Just as in Christ Jesus, you have already opened your arms of love and welcomed us on your cross.